You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining me again. Tonight, I have a a really incredible guest. I have uh, Dr. Juan Santos. He is an assistant professor at uh, the uh, St. John's University, which is actually uh, near me. It's in Queens in New York City. And we're going to be talking about quite a few things. We're going to be talking about some of his research uh, into dart frogs and um, uh, just just we're going to get into a whole host of topics and um, we'll we'll cover more of that in a second. But uh, as usual, I just want to thank everyone for the nice five star reviews on Apple Podcasts. That's a great way to support the show. If you're enjoying the content, take a few minutes, leave a nice five star review. It definitely helps get the content out there to a wider audience. And if you're interested in supporting the show, there's a few tiers on the Patreon page. For a $5 tier, you get your name mentioned uh, in a shout out in an upcoming episode, which is pretty cool. And if you are looking to be a sponsor of the show or you are a commercial business, etc., uh, go check out the Patreon page because I have some tiers for that. So uh, all that said, I hope everyone's doing well out there. I've been really looking forward to this. Uh, I have uh, Dr. Juan Santos. Uh, Dr. Santos, Juan, welcome. How are you doing tonight? I'm pretty good. Thank you. Thank you for the for this introduction and then uh, to allow me to talk a little bit about the folks that I've been working for quite a long time, actually, almost, almost than 20 years. It's my pleasure. I'm really, and I know it's it's kind of like midterms where you are, so I really want to thank you again for uh, taking the time because I know you uh, have quite a busy schedule for taking the time to uh, come and be with us tonight. Why don't we start about, I mean, you obviously you have a very long career, but why don't we start at the beginning? Why don't you tell us your story? What were some of your earliest experiences with amphibians like, and ultimately what led you through your studies to where you are today? Well, I'm, I was born in Ecuador, so that's in the middle of the equator where the actually the frogs live. So um, my father was an engineer, so he used to take me to the field. And then uh, I started hearing all these frogs, and then I liked to be in the field with the forest. And eventually that led me to somehow get in, get to become a biologist. So I have a very good mentor as a high school student. He showed that I have a talent for biology. And then I, I decided to become a biologist. Then I went to, to college and then eventually started working in a vivarium. So I'd actually worked with the, with the venomous snakes. So I was taking care of the snakes, changing their, their, their cages or feeding them and things like that. But eventually I realized that they have a big uh, tank with these very bright colored frogs. And so I said, these are poison frogs. And then I said, well, they look nice, but at that time I was thinking maybe work with the snakes. But eventually uh, one time I said, well, I really like molecular biology. So I want to combine working with amphibians and reptiles and, and eventually with mo- molecules. So then I went to my actual, my undergrad mentor, Luis Colom, and he said, well, there's an option, I can give you some options of possi- possible frogs that you can work. And there was another scientist there, Santiago Randanaos, he's a creator there. And then he said, well, I will give you uh, some hints about what you want to study. And so I went, I returned the next day and then they, so Santiago Rand gave me this small thing layer of, of papers of about osteocephalus, that is these, these, these cascade frogs that live in the Amazon, just only a few papers. But when Luis Coloma came, he gave me this big stack. This is everything that is known about possible so far. And then I was sold. So I decided to, to study poison frogs. And then since, since that 1998, I then decided just to continue working with the frogs. So it was enough knowledge about the frogs. 
and I continue working for the frogs, trying to understand first with the systematics, so the classification of the taxonomy, it eventually led me to study their coloration, their vocalization, their physiology, and then we continue to their biogeography, they will continue to now do the physiology. And now, you know, as the time has gone by and then genetics has improved a lot, so then start switching to next gen and trying to understand the genetics, the basis of the traits that we see in the frogs. So now I, I, I would say that all this history of being with the frogs, knowing that they, where they live, what they do, their history, and their, how they look like, eventually lead me to what I'm doing now. So trying to continue this, this research, trying to understand what they are. So why they are so colorful, why are so, so diverse, why they are so distributed in so many places you can find in the in the highlands, really the top of the Andes, some species remain there. And then you can find in the in the in the, in the tropical rainforest in the Amazonia and the Chocan region. And then I, I would say that that is how I actually get into the frogs. But you know, I've been in contact with frogs for quite a long time. So it's it's been part of what makes me a scientist now. But I would say that that's enough about how I start. <laughs> No, that's definitely an interesting story. I, I'm always curious, as uh, people who come from areas where different species of dart frog are endemic, was it difficult leaving an area that, that was had naturally occurring, so many different naturally occurring species of dart frogs, and then moving to a place where there wasn't any? I mean, I know for one that I would have really, really missed it if I had dart frogs in my, uh, in my home area. No, I always did not. So I, I've, I've worked with frogs around here, so but you know, I'm in between. So most of my field work is where the frogs live, so that's my field work. But here has been this in-depth dedication to actually study what the frogs are. So you can imagine, like in Ecuador, I went to the field, and then you hear these frogs; they are really active during the day. So that's what I like then about them. So I'm not really, I don't like to spend all the night actually catching frogs. So these frogs actually have a nice schedule. So I start really in the mo early in the morning, about five in the morning, and they stay after during the day and they shut up about six or seven in PM. So, you know, finding the frogs in the field is kind of tricky. They are not easy to see when you are not trying to look for them. So you can hear them, They're, they call really loud. So that's when you, for example, for the ones that are really most conspicuous, like Ophaga sylvatica, or you can think about uh, epipedritis, like a really common frogs. You go uh, by the, by the let's say by the rows, and you can hear them calling, and then you try to see them, and then sometimes you see them, but eventually you get uh, this sense of where they are, and then eventually you understand what their behavior, what they like, the places that they like to be, and places that they, for example, they congregate, they reproduce what they call, the mating call, their behavior. So that was the part in the field there. But when you come here, you bring all this knowledge, and then here you want to know why. For example, you want to understand why are frogs that are red versus frogs that are brown, and frogs that are non-toxic versus frogs that are toxic, frogs that are really loud and very easy to see, and others that are really hard to see, even though they are from the same family. This can be done here. So basically, we extracted DNA. We we spent pretty much all my PhD was doing PCRs for quite a long time, almost six years doing PCRs, trying to just reconstruct this small tree of life, or this small section of tree of life that were for the poison frogs. Eventually, that led to something else because 
and I was working with uh, uh, Dave, and he had this idea that we should work also with calls, we should work also with the biogeography. So he was a mentor that uh, pushed me to actually look for other boundaries in the in the system. So one thing was actually, let's try to see what's the history of these frogs in reference to the history of the of South America. So South America, like North America, has went through a lot of changes during this geological history. And this is tied to the rest of the frogs. So the frogs you can find in the Andes, you can find it in the Chocó, you can find it in the, in the Amazon Basin. But why they are in these different places, and usually it's tied to the history of the, and the Andes in that case. So the Andes are now really high and really tall mountains, but in the past they are not that high. So the frogs can move around, at least the ancestors, the frogs can move around. The other part is, for example, the reason that we have such a low diversity in terms of, you compare the amount of genetic difference in the frogs that you see in the, in the Amazon basin versus the frogs that you see in the Andes. And the reason is that the Amazon basin is quite young. So people might think that the tropical forest is all these really tall trees and all diversity. The diversity is there, but the Amazon basin, as we know, with the actual Brazilian, um, tropical rainforest, the choking rainforest in Colombia, and Ecuador, and Peru, and, and Venezuela, all are quite recent, less than eight million years. But the history of the really old poison frogs actually live in the Andes. Those are more than 20 years. And the ancestor, the origin of those is at least 20 million years of, of since the formation of the Andes and the history of those, or the rise of the Andes and the separation between the Chocó and the Amazon basin, and then the progressive formation of the modern Amazon basin. So in the past, you talk about 15 million years ago, the Amazon basin was pretty much a swamp or maybe a shallow ocean. So it was no tropical rainforest, because no poison frogs, obviously they don't like salt, salty water, they can't live in those areas. So when that ocean leaves the Amazon basin, then you have this pristine area that was rapidly populated by trees, eventually the frogs follow. And this was, you can trace that history from the genetics and that you can see that the ancient poison frogs actually live in the Andes and the more youngest, or the most recently diverged group of poison frogs actually come from the ancestors from the Andes. That's one aspect. The other thing is like when you go to the field and you work with these frogs, you hear them call. And the first thing that you do before you actually catch a frog, or at least a poison frog, is to hear them call. If you actually wander in the forest, try to just find one of the frogs by chance, it's kind of hard. You first actually have need to know how they call. And eventually that led me to, well, I'm waiting here for hours trying to catch a frog. Why not tape them? So I start taping them and then eventually lead to actually study of the evolution of calls in these frogs. And that connected with the, with the coloration because we think that calls and colorations are tied. And maybe that has to do with what if some frogs are really loud and very obvious when they call, what are the frogs are more shy and the ones that are really shy and the ones that usually are non-toxic, they don't have these alkaloids, these substances that make them toxic, but these close relatives are the ones that are or usually poison frogs, the ones that are really colorful, they tend to have a very conspicuous kind of call that is very easy to find them. And, and you name it, all the things that be done as, as a part of this research has been trying to understand the physiology. So one thing is that these frogs spend a lot of their energy searching for, for food. So the frogs that are not really toxic, they usually sit and wait. They stay, they can be a little bit, they move around, they can defend the territories, but they don't need to eat a lot of very toxic stuff. They basically eat whatever is available. But the ones that are really toxic, they have to spend a lot of time searching for their food. They are very specialists, so they like to eat ants or nights. And you can see them when they are feeding, they are like, like they have this tongue that looks like a shotgun, like basically it's really fast and stay on trail and spend a lot of time searching for those and they move around, they have large territories. 
So then I also asked the question, why is these frogs that are sitting way different from the frogs that are actually doing all this uh, searching for food that has toxins, and then we compare the physiology. We put the frogs to run, we measure the consumption of oxygen, and then detail that. These are the frogs that are toxic, tend to have higher aerobic metabolism. So basically, they are more athletic compared to the frogs that are more sit and wait that are really considered non-toxic. So for me, it has been always this contrast between toxic versus non-toxic. So that's why when I would think about the research in poison frogs, sometimes I'm, um, I'm surprised that people tend to focus only on the ones that are really post-somatic ones or the ones that are really colorful that people like to know of poison frogs, but they always forget about the closest relatives that are not as colorful, not as nice, not as conspicuous uh, to humans. But without them, you don't have the contrast to actually understand why the frogs evolved being so colorful in the first place. So I don't know, I'm kind of rambling around, but let me know if you have more questions. No, no, I, I <laughs> it's funny because you you actually answered several of the questions that I had lined up for you, but I'm curious, yeah. I, I, I just want to, there's a couple of things that I want to uh, pick apart from everything that you just said as well, but I, I do want to f- start out first though with the, the diversity through genetics. Uh, I had, had a guest on a while back, uh, Dr. Um, Michael Mani from Australia, and he did a tremendous amount of research with genetics that helped him identify some new species just purely through purely through through genotypes. One of the things that I'm curious about is how did the dendrobatids, how did they start out and how did they radiate outwards into so many different species and then so many different locales? I mean, what... I know we, we we touched on it a bit, but what's the benefit in having so much diversity? And is that a function of genetic diversity, or is that just a function of something else? Well, I will say I will tell you a little bit of when the story behind some of the taxonomy of the frogs. So when we, when I started, we didn't have a lot of genetics. So when I started, that's back in the late nineties, the last century actually. Then the people. I remember saying my mentor there that the taxonomy of this group is really hard. And the reason is that when you compare the morphology of the poison frogs in general, regardless of being toxic or non-toxic, it's, it's very not very different in terms of the length of the fingers or the of the of the legs, arms. But the main thing that is different from them each other is maybe the colors. So then what we started to do is trying to actually try to get all these very large groups of of what is called widespread genes. Like you find, for example, all over the Amazon basin, when, for example, one that is now called, that has been pushed out in a small, a different species, like, uh, for example, Alobetis trinitatus, that is Alobetis um, marchesianus was a complex, of, that was a widespread one of these non-conspicuous poison frogs. A very hard, very hard uh, complex of species to to make them apart based on morphology. But when we start doing the genetics of these alobetes, then we realized that actually were so many different species there that actually the genetics were very obvious that were different. They have difference more than 5% at least on the genes that we were comparing. So that is a high bar if you think about comparing something similar, like for example, in birds, sometimes just 2% difference is enough to make name different species. In this case, we were seeing up to the level of 5%. So it's a lot of genetic differences. So this makes us think that actually the diversity inside the poison frogs maybe is underestimated, but now has kind of leveled off around 340 species. So people are still describing mostly new species based on these large um, widespread species that thought they were just a single species with a large 
uh, geographical distribution now there seems to be small small actually different species under the same name and the reason is that when you think about these frogs then the ones that are really easy to make uh, to actually classify in different groups is the ones that are conspicuous like for example you think about pomelio pomelio has these all these wonderful morphs that actually if we compare the level of genetics all of them are pretty much identical at some level but actually what is behind is that the few genes are in charge of actually um, behind of these coloration patterns when you apply to other groups like for example let's say another group that is um, that america america is another of these very unique type of, of, of genus that are actually so so diverse but actually quite recent I mean, we estimate the age of that of that genus about a million years and this is mostly um, an amazonian uh, colorful group of frogs of, and the history of this is maybe that all these degradation all these diversity we've seen is that you know when you have evolved uh, defense mechanisms like toxicity and then you are able to warn potential predators about that about your toxicity you are released from predation at some level so birds avoid you other animals that can see the colors can avoid you because they identify this this white white bright colors as a warning. So as long as you are toxic, the your signal in this case the coloration can change as long as it is able to be decodified by the potential predator, for example, bird as a toxic one. So what happens that let's pick America. So it moves to the Amazon basin that has recently found eight million years ago. So it's just pristine area, perfect for person for us, really humid. A lot of ants, uh, very stable temperature for them. So it's not dry, it's wet enough. So these frogs moved in, just one of the few original or ancestral Amaregas. And then because they are protected by the, the toxicity and their warning signal starts to, to change. So basically it's now starts, the female is deciding which type of color they want for a potential mate. And though, so in this case, maybe sexual female choice in this case females choosing mates might eventually lead that to the slight variations in the aposematic signal and this eventually become more and more evident and then you have another species another species another species and when you see the phylogeny for example in america is pretty much a squash so basically you see eight million years and then these birds of diversification across the entire amazon basin of this of this genus so when you think about why is behind the diversity in poison frost one is the presence of if we talk about the toxic ones is the presence of tox of toxicity so once you have toxicity you can change as long as you keep your signal honest or very easily be identifiable by a potential predator so as long as as a warning could be a red warning could be a blue warning could be a yellow warning black and white yellow warning stripes and black underneath red as you can imagine, all the different palettes that you have in poison frogs, as long as this is easily identified as awareness, as a signal for a potential predator, then you can have all these variations. And eventually, these variations become, um, start to, uh, to become more the species that have those, or these populations that have those variations become entirely different from others that eventually become different species. So basically, it's, we see evolution in action, and especially. In, the, in, the, in this case, the signal being one of the drivers of this diversification. That's one thing that you can say about why you see, see so many species, at least in, in this group of amphibians. The other reason that I might think is that the group is, is, is in a place that favors, it's a pump, or it's, a, it's basically, it's a pump's diversity. So a demoson basin is this place that 
there actually is an engine of diversity. So there is so many places to occupy, so many niches around, so many potential prey, some, so many different places that the trust can actually eventually colonize and establish themselves that favors this diversification. And, and eventually you see more species. As long as you have these, uh, these, uh, the, the variability there, as long as you have this, this reduction of, se of, of selection by the potential predators, then you can see more species being uh, originated, being born in, in the system. But that's what we've said so far. But, you know, still we don't know much about what is going on in terms of diversification for northern places. Like, for example, in the Andes, with the Andes, you go to the Andes and do genetic work. Those, most of the species in the Andes are actually not the really conspicuous poison frogs, and most of them are really the cryptic ones, the ones that are mostly left behind, like Heloxalus or some, some Alobetis there, but mostly Heloxalus, that is a typical genus of, of poison frogs that live in the Andes. When you see them, they look alike. They're really much morphologically, um, um, and the correlation is pretty much the same. But when you compare two populations that you think they were the same species, when you compare the genetics, they look more different between each other than you can see any species of American the Amazon basin. And that, for me, is surprising that, you know, sometimes what you see not necessarily reflects what the history or the history of the frogs are. So, you know, you can have very old diversity in the Andes and very recent diversity in the Amazon basin. It's still both areas will have lots of species. That's I don't a, know if you can answer your question. No, that you did. That that's that's a, a very amazing answer. So let me just um I'm just curious now and, and, and indulge me here. So if things were to continue in their present course, let's just say that we remove mankind and anything that could potentially change the environment, if things remain in their current trajectory. Uh, at some point, millions of years from now, could species like Pamilio and Tinctorius ultimately e evolve into new species based on like, I mean, like different morphs, like like Pamilio, for example, like many of those morphs are, are isolated on islands. In millions of years, could that trajectory continue where there are new species? Probably, yes. So, you know, when you think about the, the birth of species, usually it's a, it's a process. So you start with without a single population or a bunch of populations that you have free interchange of genes between populations. Eventually something like a very, like for example, you think about the islands, what Pomelius, the different morphs of Pomelius are located. Each one starts to become separated from one another because the first kind of stream and, and on salty water. So eventually each island will have its own population and we fast forward, I wouldn't say like millions of years, but maybe 500,000 years or 200,000 years, you know, or something like that. Eventually, each of those, as long as they keep existing there, eventually might evolve into different species. So the, the, the best way to actually make sure that actually different species are eventually when they were, let's say that all these islands eventually get reconnected, somehow the, some volcanic event happens or something that allows these islands to be connected again, and all these different morphs of Pomelo start to meet in each other and then are unable to recognize or unable to interbreed or produce fertile offspring, then eventually can be by, by one of the definition of the species become a bona fide new species or different species. So I, I can imagine that will happen with enough time. That could be quite, could be in about 200,000 years, so maybe millions of years, who knows, as long as the frogs are there and they're the mechanisms that keep them separate exist. But you know, the 
what is going to happen in the past or what is going to happen in the future is kind of difficult to determine. So we don't know exactly how all these different models eventually end up. Maybe some of them might become extinct because extinction is something that naturally happens. So eventually many of those models might disappear for not necessarily because of humans, but for any sort of climatological event or floods or who knows, or an traditional predator that actually becomes resistant to the toxins and finds that eating poison frogs is, is something that is, is plentiful and it actually is nutritious. So that is one way that you can eliminate some of these morphs. Also, eventually, some of these morphs might lose their capacity to, uh, to accumulate arthroids, and then eventually they become really obvious targets because they don't have a defense anymore. So they are easy to see and without any toxins, then it's an easy meal. So you don't, a bird will find them very easy to find and very easy to eat because they don't feel the the nasty effects of intoxication. But you know, it all depends on 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 if there is if these mechanisms that are behind diversification stay in place. So like like as I mentioned, reduction of 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 intervenes of blocking movement of, of genes between different populations. And the chance or the likelihood that become extinct by just a random event is is not uh, is let's say that that didn't does not happen during this process of speciation. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's more or less what I think about how different species are formed and at least in poison frogs. No, that makes yeah, that makes perfect sense. I just I've always been fascinated by the extent of diversity that exists within dar frogs. I mean, especially members of the same species like Pamelia or Tinctorius. And and even uh, like Ranatomea, like well, I want to get into imitator in a few minutes. I have a question for you about that. But I, I've always been fascinated by the the fact that you have so many different morphs, locales of the same species. And I often wonder what genetics can tell us about that. I mean, uh, is a how genetically distinct is a population from uh, one side of a river versus another side of a river, and how does that project into the future in terms of of potential? Um, I guess divergence into becoming a new species. That's what I'd always been curious about. But I, I, I want to ask another question while we're kind of on that topic. Um, yeah, yeah. So actually, you remind me of something that I, I always have thought about the problems with uh, with taxonomy and poison frogs. You know, we always try to put from the perspective of humans how we classify things. So basically, when you see poison frogs, humans we are very visual. We can see colors. So for us, it's very easy to tease apart different population poison frogs. So for example, you can, you can, when you think just Ramitomea, it's very easy to identify different morphs based on patterns of the coloration. And then the same applies with some, for example, in the case of epipyruitis that at the level of genetics, they pretty much look very similar to one another. But when you actually go to the field and see the frogs, you can compare the tricolor, if it's tricolor for Anthony or or maybe it's a smash lesion, there is a tiny frog, that all then look very different. But a level of genetics, they are not that different. But the reason is that humans are using these, their capacity to make them these different groups based on their coloration, because we are very visual. But let's say that you pick another group that's very diverse. Uh, we start seeing that it's very diverse, like for example, uh, Alobitis. Alobitis is now this huge genus that has so many species now that people have been describing, especially from the Amazon basin, Brazilian Amazon basin, that people have been describing almost every month a new species, almost a new species, a new species. And the reason is that when you go to the morphology, it's very difficult. They, they, we cannot see any difference in their colors. Their morphology, as I mentioned, is very, very 
it's not very bearable. So we can try to try to see some difference maybe in, in motting or, or coloration of the ventral side or some of the stri and stripes, but usually it's very hard. Even for people that have been working for the frogs, sometimes you make mistakes because unless you see the, the DNA or unless you see the sequences, you cannot make them, you cannot even guess there are different species. Sometimes you make these confusions and this is because of our bias. But when you start seeing other things that people usually don't pay attention, like for example, when you hear them calls, you start to realize that actually there are more more diversity in poison frogs that we actually think. Like for example, when you hear calls of frogs, sometimes for frogs that are really cryptic, basically they look the same. When you see the calls are so different, and then you start connecting that actually there is more diversity that is there, and it's our human bias that actually is causing that. We see so many species in 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 uh, posematic or the colorful poison frogs, and actually we think that the other ones that are not that posematic or not that conspicuous are actually less diverse. Maybe it's because we are seeing, not seeing the other stuff that makes them different. Like for example, their calls or even their distributions. Now we're getting a little more for the for the people like actually going to to these these long surveys of different areas where these animals are. That actually, whenever they go to a new place that has not been explored, and they bring back those tissues, maybe do, do some genetics and realize there's a new species there, even though the species looks alike or very very similar to one that we find in another place that is not that distant, but actually they end up by genetics being different. So I, I actually just a side note for this thing about diversity, but yeah, oh, no, it makes sense. I I came across some research about salamander populations in the United States and the, the genetic studies that were done. Oh, I can't remember which species it was. I think it was something. It was something in the Ambistoma genus, but um, the 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 difference in genetics was was like, I mean, it was beyond my comprehension. But uh, they were able to identify several different species and several different species that were hybrid hybridized with other species based on their genetics. And they all, for all, for all intents and purposes, looked almost exactly the same. But while we're talking about, about coloration and text and uh, toxicity and diversity, one of the things that I've always been curious about is uh, Ranatomea imitator. And uh, I, I've always been curious and tried to make sense out of why would a dart frog species mimic another species to the extent that like what, what's can you can you just break that down kind of part by part to us and explain what advantages would you have as a dart frog imitating another dart frog yeah well to, to answer this question i should start first you know this is having the life work of carl summer so uh, you ask him so he has been working with these like almost like since then since the late 80s on the system so he has been able to to his students go through all the different aspects. Now they are doing even genomics with the with the imitator. But the thing is that you know when the frogs tend to have um, let's say how it actually works. So aposematism is the presence of what is called a warning signal that actually advertises the presence of a defense and case toxicity. So two frogs for the same species trying to have the same signal. So that signal whenever it is seen by the bird is easily identified. So the advantage for the frog is that if the signal is identified by the predator, the predator avoids the frog. And for the predator, what it sees, if the signal is, st is still constant, it can learn and remembers that the signal represents something toxic. In most cases, some birds or some snakes or ordinary predators usually do not have an idea. They are born without any sort of memory about that or any sort of imprint on the about avoiding those frogs. 
So they have to taste for the first time. So they go and catch one of these colorful frogs that seems to be easy to catch, and eventually have a nasty experience. If they don't die, they will remain forever that this colorful frog is actually bad food. It's going to make you sick, and then you're going to have a very bad memory of, of that. So when you think about these these dynamics between the predator, in this case, the birds and the frogs, the idea is that unify the signal as much as possible, then the all the cause of actually teaching the predators to avoid being prey or being eaten at the first place is will be reduced. Let's say that you have now four species. All of them are toxic, but all of them, if they were from different colors, let's say one is red, one is yellow, one is blue, one is orange. These are different signals. Each one is different. So you have a predator that has no clue and comes to where these frogs actually live. They said these frogs even around the same place and they overlap in distribution. So the, the predator moves around and sometimes it's yellow, sometimes it's orange, sometimes it's blue, sometimes uh, all these different warning signals. So every time that predator is born and needs to learn to avoid these toxic frogs, has to try one of these. Because let's say they try yellow, and now remembers that yellow is really bad, but eventually they say they find the, the orange one. So the orange is different from yellow. So they try another, the, the orange one also gets intoxicated and then tries another one and tries another one. For the frogs, as it's as, as they have different signals, it's more expensive because they don't cannot divide the cost of teaching the, in this case, the predator to avoid them. So what happens is evolution in this in this process to actually find out some some of optimal solution that based on selection eventually leads to all these signals to converge in a single signal that actually results in all these different species sharing the same parent of colors that for the predator in this case of the uh, bird will identify them as the same species. But we know through genetics and some more detailed information of these individual species that are actually different species. So this causes what is called a Mullerian mimics. So basically all of these are different species that share the same signal in this case, to teach potential predators to avoid being the, the, to teach the potential predators that that signal means toxic, toxic, toxicity and, and danger. So that's one way that you can find all these different species converging to the same signal. It's a it's a way it's a strategy that is optimal to actually divide the cost of teaching what is called naive predators, birds or snakes that are born without any sort of preconception or any sort of knowledge that that signal means talk means danger so you know instead of each species have to each one sacrifice one individual to teach that bird that single bird all of them share and this is four species shared one one quarter of the cost because you know each one if one is one dies because the others look alike eventually the bird will identify all the other morphs all the other frogs with the same pattern of coloration as the same species and you know this is the reason that that for example when they start working for the imitator they thought that actually was actually a, a variation of, vari of, of variables of ventrimacula that that was at the, at the time the these widespread genus of these tiny frogs that eventually become all these different species now that are in, in what is now called randy domain so that's one way to say it. and that is very common you not only find and that group but you can find in some in some uh, americas that also tend to share the same parents. Like, for example, you, you can think about bilinguist, parvula, and canarachi, all of them look alike. And then, for for example, in case of epipyroids, when you think about you know, tricolor and anthony, people would always confuse between these two because they look the same. There's some difference when you actually 
actually know what they are and actually not be known how they are different species but but they, they have converged in the same signal that that, re, that protects both species because they share the signal they keep them being uh, they share this one signal to potential predators and they the cost of teaching new predators is less uh, i think that might answer your question but I, we can talk about the basic mix that's even more fascinating for me but yeah, I, I just, I mean, let me just kind of clarify for myself, just so I'm I'm 100% sure. So essentially, they all have, um, I guess you could say they all have, they all have the, the same ingredients to produce coloration that would deter a predator. And it just sort of evolves convergently. Um, I don't want to say like by chance, but, but like the fact that imitators are so successful at imitating other species it's just because they have the same ingredients to be able to produce that coloration, and then it just it happens to be effective. Is that kind of what you're getting at, or am I am I missing I'm, the point? I'm, I always said that. So there was a, a paper published last year that actually was probably one of the pioneers in this aspect. Actually, it was not in imitated; it was done in sciences. But basically, what they tried to address is the origins of the coloration of some of these frogs. But basically, you see a mixture of things that they they are produced on their own metabolism and things that they sequestered from the diet. But the thing is, as you mentioned, obviously they, they share some mechanism production of colors. You know, it's like the same mechanism, but the amount of ingredients to produce, let's say a red or a blue or a, or a green, in this case, is favored when you have less cost. So for example, let's say that you have a bunch of, of these frogs that have different variations of yellow, all of them are different species and they and they want to converge or they, they converge into a single type of pattern of color because what happens is the predator tends to remember one one shade of yellow. So always remember that shade of yellow. So as long as the others try to converge to that yellow, all the frogs or the frogs that have different species converge to that shade of yellow, then the predator will confuse them as the same species. So what I'm trying to make is that being able to confuse the predator that all of them are the same species is the optimal solution to the, these, um, these similarities that we've seen in frogs. So basically all of them look alike, so then the cost of, of predation is less because for the predators, they look as the same species, so they, if they see a color, they will remember easily, even though they are maybe different species at the level of genetics, but if they look alike, then the predator will not try a different species as long as they looks the one that remembers that was the 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 first try of this toxic for that cause in this case a, a very uh, nasty experience for the predator to remember. So I, I think that maybe answers a little bit of your question. But yes, it does. It does. I I want to get into toxicity and the I guess the varying levels of toxicity between different species. But before we get into that, can we discuss the process of alkaloid accumulation through diet and how yeah. does that how does that begin and how do frogs how are they able to sequester these alkaloids into toxins? How does that how does that work? All right. So again, let's say about the history of the frogs. So you know the these frogs have been described in the early eighteen hundreds. So when there's somebody describes some some frogs from the for the West in that time the French Guiana what Guianas. So, you know, the people in the past thought that they know that these frogs were toxic at some level. Some people saw, uh, especially some, some Native Americans of Colombia using the, these frogs as a, 
as a weapon. So they use they use them to to actually to kill the frog, and then they drop the darts on the skin of in this case of phylobates, and they make uh, they make these poison arrows. So that's the name of the frog. So basically, somebody some somebody seen these people using the frogs as a way to to put venom or toxins in a, in a dart and making a, a, a poison arrow. But you can say until the late 1990s, most people thought that these frogs were able to produce their own toxins. So there was like the most obvious answer, or the, the most, uh, you said, people thought that was obvious. The frogs are producing their toxins like was in the case of some other groups that people have been studying for. For, for a long time, other, other amphibians that are, that are not that toxic, like so you can think about toads, not basically, and we know they are toxic, they have these glands that produce the toxins when they are squeezed, so, you know, these frogs might be, uh, these cognavopositivals, they might be able to produce their own toxins. But something was kind of off, because some of these frogs were brought back to the United States, and they were actually trying to identify all the profiles of bacillus on these frogs, they were they were in they were they found in the field, but when they returned these frogs or bring the frogs here in the United States, start doing some cap, uh, captive breeding of the frogs, and eventually they realized that eventually the frogs start losing their toxicity, and there was like a puzzle why, why these frogs are losing their toxicity. So they by elimination they said well maybe we are changing something in their environment that is causing these frogs to lose their toxicity, and I would say around the mid 1990s. John Daly, that he was working on these alcohol profiles of amphibians for such a long time, had this clever idea that said maybe the reason is that it has something to do with the diet. So what they did is actually do an experiment. So basically they get these captive raised frogs and then put it in the field. And then compared to a control, so would feed with the fruit flies that have in the lab. And they compared the, the profiles of alcohols and they start finding alcohols that were in the, that were more toxic, the frogs that were in the, in these cages with the normal diet that they eat from the field, rather than the, the frogs that were, eat, were, were fed with these, with these fruit flies. Then they also start realizing maybe the diet is behind this. So let's now give it another, another different type of experiment. So in this case, let's get these fruit flies that we are feeding these, these frogs that we have in the, in the lab and add some of the alcohols that we have synthesized in our lab and see if the frogs are able to to capture those alcohols and put them in their skin, and then, and then they they find out that the frogs were able to sequester the alcohols. So then they realize that actually the history of the toxicity in poison frogs is more complex than we thought. So one thing is that the frogs seems to be unable to produce their own toxins. So basically, they need to get from somewhere else. Then they start thinking where. So then they start looking at the profiles of the they died and. At that time, the amounts of or the surveys of what they died was quite limited, so they didn't know much. So people started doing some surveys about the gut content, and then people started realizing that the frogs are really toxic tend to eat some specific type of prey items that were really common in their diet, but usually not that common in other frogs. So they start seeing a lot of ants, especially mites. And if you have seen a mite, mites are really tiny, really hard to catch. They can really, really fast. And it's not a very big meal. So you have to eat lots of mice in order to get something that you might get if you get a, eat a cricket or a beetle or something slightly larger and meatier with more food. So these frogs had to spend a lot of time eating these tiny predatum that, that actually they like a lot, but 
they not be very nutritious. So then they start this idea that maybe the the, the mites and, and more or less the ants were the main, the, the main source of the aclos that were actually disabled, these frogs were able to sequester. So then with fossil experiments, they start actually doing surveys of the aclos and the mice and start finding that the aclos that you find in the mice actually the same aclos that you find in the frogs. And then start seeing that the connection is uh, two level. The frogs are actually like a battery. So basically the frogs go around in the field eating lots of lots of mites. So they spend a lot of time, a lot of energy searching for these mites, get a lot of mites, and when they digest, they strike all the mites and put them in their skin. So it's like, you know, each mite, the amount of aclos that you have in the mite is tiny, it's almost nothing, because a, a mite is really a tiny piece of of food. And you know, even from that tiny, tiny piece of food, you have to extract the aclos even even less of that we can get, for example, for a large plate that we have lots of aclos, but that's not the case. These mites have lots of lots of the aclos. So the frogs eat a lot of these mites, and eventually, with enough mites, they're able to accumulate enough of the toxins or these mites and put it in their skin. So during that was that was uh, that was a major breakthrough in the nineties. So eventually, all the two thousands people stand expanding a little more about this idea about what are the actually main source of these aclos. So they went to see what actually the frogs were eating and surveillance and there were a list of potential mites like orobatid mites and some types of ants and start seeing that actually the same aclos you find in the ants, the same aclos you find in the mice are the ones that you find in the frogs. So now it's like we know that the frogs have a series of potential mechanisms that allow them first obviously uh, catch the mites so basically morphologically they are adapted so they have very narrow tongues and then they have a very very active looking for these prey items then they have another capacity that actually once they get inside their body they soak these these alkaloids and they have to move those alkaloids from their gut to their skin where they are accumulated so because you know the skin of this poison frog is the main place where the alkaloids have accumulated so how you get alkaloids from the gut to the skin has been uh, and they're still a little bit mysterious. So nowadays, people have been doing you know, a little more of, of more genetics and transcriptomics and genomics. Some some slight advances of what actually some of the proteins behind this mechanism. That basically, for example, we know that some of these proteins maybe gobble the alkaloids and bring those to the skin or bring those across the system of the frog and then put them in the, in the skin. But what are the only genes involved? How the mechanisms are actually behind all these processes still no, no. Eventually, we we'll, we won't end up knowing, uh, we said during this decade, that actually how they do it. But, you know, that is one aspect. The other aspect is that in the first place, these frogs have evolved the ability to not get intoxicated. There's also an obvious, obvious question. If these frogs are not producing their own alkaloids, so they are getting toxic prey, so they're putting venom or these toxins in their own system, so they have to evolve mechanisms that keep them uh, un, uh, immune to that 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 uh, dangerous uh, substances that are acquiring for the environment. So, you know, this has been something that we have been working on for the last five years, trying to identify genes that actually are the main targets of this aclos and showing that these genes actually have changes that result in changes in the, in the proteins that they encode that make them uh, uh, immune to this aclos. So, you know, it's, as we start seeing peering down beyond just only what we see outside to actually what's inside the frogs, we are seeing more and more things that are just mind-blowing in, in terms of how diverse or how 
significant has been the impact of being toxic, not only from the level of being colorful, that's the thing that was obvious for most people when they think about poison frogs, but the level inside the frog, the mechanisms that have, have to be, uh, the adaptations that the frog have to uh, come up to actually be able to, uh, to manipulate on effectively and safely these toxins that are in their diet. So, you know, I have foreseen that in the next next couple of years or next during this decade, we're going to see lots of breakthroughs, breakthroughs um, about what is what makes the frogs, at least the poison frogs, so unique. And I'll not be surprised that will be several things that we have never thought in the past. Two questions. First question. Right. First question. Um, is the ability to accumulate alkaloids, was that something that came from a common ancestor or was that another example of convergence? And my second question is, obviously Central and South America is a very big area and I'm assuming there's, there's lots of different sources of alkaloid-rich prey. Is there a variation between certain prey items geographically, meaning like phyllobates is generally, well, it's the most toxic uh, genus, as opposed to say something like uh, Epipetobates or Ufaga or Dendrobates, is there a, a, a significant amount of variation in terms of prey items geographically? Meaning, if you were to say, let's just say for argument's sake, you were to transplant um, Phyllobates to uh, an area where only Tinctorius lives and they, they subsisted on the alkaloid rich prey there, would their toxicity be less? If you move them to a different prey item, or I mean, again, I don't—it's kind of a, kind of a long question, but uh, yeah, what do you think? Uh, let's start for the first one. So we don't know yet if the the ancestral poison was actually was able or not to sequester alkaloids. So, but when you think about a little bit more broad beyond poison frogs to other close relatives or the families of frogs, we don't think that we start seeing other frogs that have the same alkaloids and probably the same mechanism. You can think about Melanophaniscus as a uh, genus of toads, you can think some, even some Eleutherodactylus in Cuba that have this ability to sequester alkaloids. And then you can think about frogs in Australia that are so far away and so distant from person that have similar capacity to sequester alkaloids. So my hunch is that actually this mechanism is more, is maybe more widespread than we thought. You know, the genetics and our understanding of the physiology of frogs it's kind of lagging behind many other groups of vertebrates, so it's not like birds or mammals or, or groups that have been so much. Uh, they are already in post-genomic areas. In poison frogs, on this and amphibians, we are still in pre-genomic. So basically, we have very few genomes, and we just get the genomes. And then if you dig into the genomes, you eventually start seeing things that maybe relate to mechanisms that allow them to sequester records. That's one thing. The other thing is that we don't know, as I mentioned, the mechanism, how they the frogs are actually to sequester across in the first place from the diet. So if we were able to identify those genes or those mechanisms, then we can start looking for very all or very what is called basal groups of poison of poison frogs or frogs that are in the in the in the two in the two families or one family. So for example, we can start studying what is going on in the physiology of, of Riobates that is probably one of the oldest poison frogs, at least one of the closest relatives of the frogs that we think as 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 poison frogs, uh, if you think about the ones that are colorful. And then you can actually look for other large genuses that are in between toxic ones, like for example, Hiloxelus, and all of them, with certain one, like is Hiloxelus, as is, is 
colorful. The others are really cryptic, but they are in between. They are not toxic. They are cryptic, but are genetically they are more similar to uh, to dendrobitis of or, or dendrobitis as I mentioned as entire subfamily or or epipiretus or or, or amberegatus and other subfamily. So when we start seeing more information about that comes from the genetics and especially from the part of physiology, then we are, might be able to answer the question if this this mechanism of being able to sequester alkaloids is actually ordered than we thought. If that is the case, then some of the events that we see the pop-up of these origins of alkaloid sequestration and poison frost maybe maybe are linked to this ancestor that is now gone, or maybe it's just uh is has been I wouldn't say revolved, but actually comes up or becomes more emphasized in certain groups. You know, that being toxic is very demand, it's very expensive metabolically. So to be able to accumulate these toxins, you have to spend a lot of energy not only searching for the prey items that have the toxins, but also being able to keep up with the maintenance of of all these all these adaptations that keep them safe from the toxins. So my my answer to if the ancestral process was was able to not or not to sequester alkaloids is I don't know. And then if but I'm inclined that maybe, maybe it's probably if we have more data, maybe we can we can see some early at least some basic or the skeleton of this mechanism of alkaloid sequestration very at the base of the of the all the history of the poison frogs. Now if the if they said I am in that my hunch is wrong and actually each of these independent groups like Epipiretes and Merega, all the dendrobates or dendrobatinia, phylobates are each one evolving independently. This mechanism of alkaloid sequestration that will be really surprising because you know as we start seeing all the mechanisms involved in the process of alkaloid metabolization, alkaloid sequestration, there are too many changes to actually come out to to come out to be the same across all these independent groups. So you know, revolution or evolving things are that look. They're really complex. Multiple times, usually, is less what's called less parsimonious, less likely to happen because you know you have to evolve really complex stuff every single time. Most likely, is that actually it's a single change or a single origin, and sometimes it's turned on or turned off. The ones that are turned off are the ones that eventually, uh, by selection, just lost the ability to sequester alkaloids. Maybe we find on other evidence that maybe some of the genes are there doing something else or just. They have lost their function and they are just only fossils, genetic fossils that be in the genome. So the frogs are they are considered non-toxic, even though they are closely related to the ones that are toxic. So that more or less, I hope, answers your question about if the answer for the person was were able to sequestrate. So, so maybe, maybe, maybe not, but I may will not be surprised that actually that's the case. That actually is really all as an really old mechanism. So that is maybe emphasizing poison first, but maybe it's more widespread across all all the all the frogs that at least have this ability to have toxins. So that means a lot of different groups are really distant from poison frogs, like some like toads or even some uh, some dirt frogs and others like that. Now, in the terms of what you mentioned about, if you move a frog, a poison frog, from a different place and see if you see a change in their alcohol profile, you will see always that. Let's see one example that is very close to home. So. In the 1930s or around the, the early last century, somebody decided to introduce uh, the introvitis aureatus to Hawaii. So now there are an invasive species that lives in Hawaii that is a poison frog that is doing fine. And then when the people have doing the profiles of the alkaloids of the of this introduced aureatus in Hawaii, they have alkaloids. So they 
they, the mechanisms of sequestration and phosphorus is really effective. And, they, and, and the reason that these invasive frogs are there is because they are able to get the alkaloids, even though these are completely different faunas, a different, I'm talking about the arthropods, different types of mice and ants and whatever it is there, but the frogs are still able to secrete those alkaloids from those large group of arthropods. So that means if they, as long as it's a mite, as long as there is an ant there where they live, they will be able to sequester alkaloids. Now, what really worries me is like, for example, when you actually transform the, the environment, like it's happening, actually it was a study, I think two years ago by a colleague of mine, that they actually compare a frog, uh, of a subatica between a pristine forest and the frogs in a, in a secondary forest, a natural pasture. So, you know, people, in, especially in, in tropical areas, because of the need of land, they have to they just get rid of the forest and just make, and just have pastures there to have cows and other livestock there. So the frogs are still there, or at least live in the, in the fringes of, of the forest. So they eat less of the common arthropod fauna they used to have in the pristine area. And then what happens is when they do that, they you start seeing a significant decrease in the diversity of alkaloids. Doesn't mean they're completely out of alkaloids. They have less alkaloids. But you know what means to be how how much is enough to be toxic? That depends. One question that you answer, for example, phylobitis. Phylobitis is if you think about the diversity of alkaloids, phylobitis have is very limited. It's nothing to compare, for example, to Ophega or Ranitomeia or other or the frogs that are considered poison frogs. But what happens in, in phylobitis is that I have one toxin that's really powerful, batrachotoxin, that is one is enough. It's enough to kill humans, it's enough to kill large mammals, so it's good enough to kill and keep all potential predators at bay. So that means non necessary quantity is enough to define the amount of alkaloids. It's probably the quality. So you have a good alkaloid, or at least one alkaloid is really effective to prevent to prevent, in this case, um, uh, of keeping Pratos at bay, that is enough. But let's say you cut fellow 80s and then you, for whatever reason, what they, this area population becomes isolated in the pasture, and then they have no access to the original source of batrocotoxin, then these frogs more or less will be uh, doomed because basically they are very limited ability to sequester alkaloids and the source of the main toxin that is now gone is not there. So those frogs are just, uh, will face extinction because, you know, they are not protected. So, and they are bold, they have, they, they're doing their stuff uh, they have been doing so far. So they have, they are yellow or white, they are really easy to identify. So if they lost alkaloids, then there is no aposematism. So the their system breaks down. So that's one thing that actually leads me to this, uh, this the issues that we're going to see as, as we face climate change. But we can talk at, at the end about that. That's an interesting angle, too. I, I want to get into that as well. I do want to ask, though, some of your research focuses on the metabolic rate of yeah. dendrobatids. And I, I can imagine it must be a, a bit of a balancing act in terms of how you manage your, your intake versus the, the output, meaning uh, the amount of energy that it takes to produce toxins. Do you want to tell us about some of that research? Yeah. So, well, 
so measurements are very rigid and females is kind of tricky. Basically, the way that we do it is went to the field and basically you catch frogs that are in pristine areas and then you actually measure the amount of oxygen consumption after doing nothing that is the basal or estimated body rate. And then after doing activities, so you make the frogs run or jump and then you measure the amount of oxygen consumed. So then when you compare between different species, you get a you, you get enough population or enough samples for a population and, and different populations to get an estimate of the species, and then you compare it between the species. And then what we found is that frogs that usually are aposematic tend to have a higher what is called active metabolic rate. Active metabolic rate, when you think it's about when you compare a human, humans that are athletes versus humans that are more like people that they are not athletes, like basically common people. So the athletes have a more efficient way to manage oxygen. So they they don't need they, they hard the heart doesn't have to pump that fast or that strong, and they can endure a lot of exercise. The same applies to poison frogs. So frogs that are really toxic tend to be more athletic, you can say, if you compare it to the ones that are non-toxic. So with that said, so what is behind that? So why we see that difference? And there's many hypotheses because it's kind of hard to test those, but one of those is that the fact that you have to eat a very specialized diet demands you to be active all the time. As I mentioned, they have to eat lots of mites in order to be get enough alkaloids to put in their skin. So they have to be searching a large area of their environment for those mites or being active, consuming many, many times or spending a lot of time praying in order to get enough of these mites to get enough substance, not only to, for the alkaloids, but also to other things that they need to do. For example, just get enough to 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 other metabolic needs, like for example, to be able to produce sugar and, and then to keep their muscles going and uh, being able to vocalize and things like that. And then when you think about the cost, now another aspect is that maybe the cost of digesting that prey items is also expensive. So they have to be able to have evolved adaptations that allow them to be and eat expensive meals. And I mean, the expensive meals mean that difficult to digest. It's not like, for example, you think about more soft, soft kind of arthropods or more meaty arthropods like a cricket or or any or a large larvae that is kind of easy on the and their and, and their digestive system to actually digest and get all the nutrients. But in the case to eating mostly these very hard uh, and tough predators like mites and ants, you have to spend a lot of energy trying to digest those. So that also is an uh, requires a high metabolic rate. So that's another link between metabolic rates and the digestion of those sort of predators that are really, really not that easy to digest. And the, another thing that also comes to mind is the, the, the idea that the, all the process of being, of keeping you from, or keeping you from being intoxicated. So you're eating a lot of these toxic items that are really toxic for most other animals that have not developed the ability to digest those toxic items. And then you have to move those items through your system because that movement of those toxins to your system and accumulation of those systems requires a lot of energy in the sense that you need a lot of mechanisms that keep those toxins out of your system or control or or you have or have what is what we can think about uh, but some sort of alternative mechanism to keep you not being poisoned. So, for example, when we think about the, all the different uh, receptors that are affected by the alcohol and poison frogs, those receptors tend to be 
different from the ones that are susceptible because that's the main aim of this, uh, this toxin is to disrupt the function of those receptors, like for example, ion channels that are important in in a moment of signals in, in neurons that actually is uh, are close that you find in poison plus actually are the main target. So the, the arclos try to block the function of these receptors and and the poison have evolved adaptations that are kind of okay. So I would say like there are alternatives that actually make the receptors immune, but they are not as effective. So you have a defective or kind of borderline or at least enough to make it you functional you have to spend a lot of energy to actually compensate that not optimal type of, of, of receptors or mechanisms that otherwise for other animals that are sensible to these articles are not necessary. So, you know, the cost not only comes from the, the, the hard work that needs to find enough for items to keep you toxic and keep you fit and well nourished. Also, it has to do with the fact that you have to being able to push or move around or metabolize those, those substances that come from a very tough predator, especially when you think about mites. Mites are really, the, the exoskeleton, basically the cover that they around their body is really tough. It's really, it's just a shell and then tiny meat inside. And they have to eat a lot of that stuff in order, a lot of these tiny predators to be able to get enough of the alpha. So, you know, it's, it's if you have to spend all your life eating hard stuff eventually have to evolve uh, uh, mechanisms that make you kind of more efficient, but at the same time, more, it's more energetically expensive that is expressing high metabolic rates. Hopefully I can answer your question. No, absolutely. It, it, I mean, my only, again, my only experience has been with captive dog frogs. And one of the things that I've noticed about the, the frogs that I keep in my, my personal collection is they're, they're almost constantly hungry. They're constantly looking for food. They're constantly foraging. And I always wondered why, considering in a captive environment, they're pretty much fed very, very consistently. And then I'd, I'd sat through a, a lecture a few weeks ago about, um, with a scientist who did some work in, in Brazil and how the, even wild frogs were just so, had so much body mass and ate so much. I never really gave it any thought that that was, um, I guess the 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 price to pay for the uh, for the diet that would allow them to uh, sequester alkaloids that that makes uh, makes a lot of sense to me now. It, it definitely cleared up a lot of uh, a lot of my questions. Yes. Yes. We we talked a little bit about new new species of dart frogs, and you were you worked in cooperation with others towards the discovery of ten. It was ten new species. Am I correct? Yeah, well, it has, has changed. So we we keep discovering new species. So yeah, but I would say one time we discovered 10 species, especially that time I think was in Venezuela that actually when, you know, Venezuela now is kind of hard to do field work, but that time was, was okay. And basically nobody has done any service of poison frogs for 50 years there. So we went to every single place that they, people have collected in the past. And hold and behold, most of these places have new species, obviously. So then when we do the genetics, these are new species, these are new species, these are new species. And that were obvious for us because, you know, the descriptions that people provided in the 60s were kind of very limited and very general. So when you go and there, you find that actually there is no necessary, this is an umbrella for a complex of species actually there. When you include calls, you find that the different calls, when you compare where they live, or especially and uh, where they live, the cores or or some of the colorations are easy to now when you have more material to see, then you realize there are actually more than one species. And then from there, you go to the part of actually what 
which one is which, and then you usually use genetics to help you or help you to guide you on, in terms of what are different species. But you know, describing species is or doing science is always a collective effort. So it's not like you do on your own. So basically, in my case, I work with many people of different uh, uh, interests in poison frogs, not only for the level of genetics, but people that do conservation, people that do captive breeding, the people that do physiology, the people that do uh, general taxonomy. So in the case of taxonomies, is 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 now they have become more and more integrative. So it's not like somebody getting some frogs on the field and just describing what they see and comparing with us already in the collection in order to describe uh, this is different from what is in the collection and the collection has a name. So if these are supposedly to be the same and actually they look different, maybe it's a different species. Nowadays it's more than that. So you try to address different aspects of the history of so you try to address their genetics, obviously. So it, you compare different populations and then try to see if they actually very similar genetically or different. So if they're enough different, then you have a very good uh, suggestion that maybe are more than one species. Then you add the component of calls that usually has been start to be included in the analysis. And then, you know, for calls is really crucial because calls is a way that allows a species to identify an individual to identify potential mates. So frogs, uh, as any other animal, will try to make their calls as unique as possible because that's the only way that you prevent uh, unwanted uh, partners coming to your territory or, or, or basically being able to identify this is my potential mate because we are the same species or so recognizing my call as, as from the same species. So when you add that component and you add bioacoustics, and nowadays people have been adding other sort of things like for example trying to address uh, distributions so you know in the past when you think about the late uh, mid in uh, 1900s and late and uh, i would say not, not until like, like until the 80s or something like that most of the discoveries of taxonomy were done by by people in the first world from the us or europe that get enough money for an expedition so they get a bunch of their grad students and then go for a month or two months and collect everything that you can in specific places. So what they do is go there, a place that is very diverse, collect everything, and then then later on they do the description of the species they found. So that's good because you, you can more or less describe many new species that obviously were not undescribed in the past because nobody has gone on the collections. But when you think nowadays what's happening in South America has become a more, more middle income continent. So there is more people that actually are doing science as a living. So you can have now generations of herpetologists that have been uh, staying doing herpetology since they graduated school now are professional curators and have students. So they start going beyond. So they start going to really hard places that most of people would not go because or they are hard to reach or, or, or dangerous or, um, or basically unexplored or, and they have enough time to actually go and explore. So that has happened in Ecuador, has happened in Brazil, has happened in Colombia, in Peru, when people now, these local scientists go there and they go there and, and they find new things. So usually they contact people like me or others that have been working in the group for a while and then we try to help them with the taxonomy or the genetics or, or some opinions about the species. But they are doing the hard part, going and collect the frogs in hard places. And obviously, when you have more places to visit, you will find more species. So then you start seeing that actually there are more species than we thought, and then you end up with long lists, not only 
two species, sometimes you find 10 species or more. So as I think uh, until they finally reach every single place that these frogs live, that actually is quite a lot, eventually we're gonna continue finding new species. And you know, as in the tools that we are using to separate uh, species that look the same, especially the ones that are not as conspicuous, uh, creepy ones, when you use genetic tools to actually compare between these two, usually they find new stuff. Like, like for example, I just mentioned uh, was this year a publication of some some uh, a large tree of allobetes from the entire Amazon basin, and they find lots of new dendrobetes there. So, tons, tons of close poison or poison frost if you define as a large group. So they find it because they collected for so many different areas that people have been collecting tissues for quite uh, for a decade, and then they sequence those a few genes, and then they identify that this uh, this place has five more species. This place has ten species down the way to be described. So you know. The more you know, the more you explore, the more likely you find new species. Now, what is going to be the end of what is the actual final number of poison frogs? We start far from sure, but I would not be surprised that we surround 340 species that we maybe reach 500 species of within all these large group. But you know, that is just as that's just my guess. That's incredible. Are any of these species that are newly discovered, are any of these revisions, meaning, uh, uh, let's just say for argument's sake, like, uh, uh, I mean, I, I'm kind of a tarantula fan myself, and I know that there was um, some uh, some changes made to the taxonomy of Brachypelma. A lot of species were moved out of Brachypelma into another genus. Is that happening at all with dendrobatids? Are there, is there, any, are there any new genera? Because I, I remember when uh, Ufaga was part of dendrobates, and then they got their own distinction. Is is there any revision going on in the taxonomy now as new species are discovered? Or uh, I would say that more or less um, people have agreed in the number of genes. So there is a bunch of new genes that were defined like in the in 2017, I think, was the last major revision of the group. You know, the problem is... Uh, so when you think about genuses or a genera, that actually is the problem, a genus genera. When you think about genera, it's, um, it's, uh, depends on who is, who is the authority, who is the person that actually defines those genera. So some people are more like to define things like very few species, one genera, or very few species, one genus, few species, one genus, one, one genus. Others are more like, let's say, this is a large group. They should be in this in a single genus. So, like anything else across the tree of life, people have been trying to get um, the most uh, accurate classification based on what is known about the evolutionary history of the group, basically the phylogeny. The phylogeny is just basically a representation of the tree of life with each of the tips of each of the tiny branches at the top of these trees represent species that we see in the field or we know they're alive or, ex or exist, that we are able to capture them and then do genetics on those. So now that information is there. So species is something that is easy to define in terms because, you know, and species in this case will be isolated for other species. They don't find hybrids and there's several of their traits that make them unique. But when you start lumping those those different species in larger groups, in this case, like for example, this is going to name this genus as normally as subfamily and things like that. That becomes a little more hazy in poison frogs. 
as I mentioned, is the morphology is kind of hard sometimes to actually use as a, uh, a useful tool to actually just based on morphology separate between different groups. And then what the people have done is try to go for looking for more characters. So basically what they do is looking in more detail the structure of the fingers or looking more detail the structure of the bones or the muscles. And that is hard work. So what they do is sometimes they get a bunch of few species, we have 320, and they basically get a summary of about 40 species that they managed to, to get in the right conditions to be able to do the dissections, and they find new characters. So, and they try to use that as a definition of this group, they say this new, this new, this new genus or this new subfamily and things like that. And sometimes what they find is that actually some of the characters are more variable than they thought. And then eventually that moves the, the naming, especially at the level of, of general and the families up and down. So, so I would say recently they described one of, I think described two, two genera. The one is monotypic, so monotypic means one species in that genera, in that genus, and the other one has, uh, I think, has four species, something like that. And it makes some sense, but actually, it's still like maybe. Maybe we need more information to actually corroborate if those groupings will stand uh, and will stand as uh, as useful as as useful ways to actually understand the classification of the group. For me, the most important thing is is as the species. So probably describing species is the main thing that we should be worried about. So be able to be able to identify as much of the diversity out there that's real, right? Just only these families or subfamilies, or and even uh, even general. That sometimes is very de depends on who is actually the person in charge or defining those those groups. But you know, it happens. But more or less, I would say, up to this day, the phylogeny or the tree of life or what is pretty stable, more or less stable, so has not changed much. There's few surprises with some groups that have been popping up. For example, uh, called Rubeni being a frog that looks cryptic. We have like a cryptic frog is non supposed we don't know if it's toxic or not, but we know that it's stuff that is not uh, it's not that specialist, but it's in nested in, in the middle of the portion of the really dendrobitis like frog. So it's it's we don't know what is going on with that frog. So it's in the middle of that group. And then you know there is with people finding very rare frogs that eventually they are not, they are considered like the, on their own category. So they, these are the ones that I mentioned that are now just one of few species in a new genus. Like for example, Proobetes, and I think it was one species in that genus that that we thought was extinct. Now somebody found it, and then you find out that it's kind of it's its own place, not in in between all the other large groups of poison frogs. And I don't know if we're gonna find more of these surprises, but I don't think they don't be that the case in general. So we are, for me, I'm still waiting for as people do more uh, description across the entire group to be able to, with confidence, accept some of the groupings. So, but you know, people find this division, for example, the, what it used to be the introverts in different different genera useful, and I think. That's okay because basically it doesn't contradict what we have found in for the for the phylogenies of all the the tree of life of the poison frogs that that we can use for example to identify Ophega that is one of these few 
uh, genomes that have this this unique behavior of females feeding their young with unfertilized eggs. But you know, somebody eventually finds out that some range may have that, and then some anomalous might have that, and then we start seeing that even though things that we think that are unique for all figs maybe are not that unique when you start seeing things with more detail and have more time to explore the behavior of all the frogs are usually are not as famous and, uh, and well known as and this is all figures. That's incredible. That's well, we're kind of winding down towards the end. I, I, it's funny because whenever I do an interview like this, I always end up with with more questions at the end because. Uh, it's just such a fascinating topic, but I wanted you to give us a chance to, or excuse me, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about the, the Santos Lab and some of the work you're doing, and um, if you if there are people out there who are interested in this type of research, how they could find out more and what you're up to at the Santos Lab. Yeah, so well, so hopefully you can put in your podcast the, the link to my lab, so well, it's jcsantosresearch.org. So then you can find our papers. So we publish, we put our papers, everything that we've been published so far there. And then my lab has three PhD students and we have uh, two master's students now, but that's the case because it depends on the master, they have very short time. But basically what we are doing now is, so one of the things that, one of the themes that I have for a quite a long time is trying to connect what we have seen in the frogs to the genetics. So this connection between phenotype and genotype, what it's called. So phenotype is what we see the frogs, like for example, high metabolic rates, the alkaloid resistance, the coloration, the, you can think the dye specialization, the, the, the ability to resist their own toxins, and the genetics behind. So we are using different tools, starting obviously with, with actually trying to peer into a large set of the genes of the frogs. So one way that we do that is through transcriptomics. So basically transcriptomics is basically trying to extract one of the piece of the of the chain of of transfer of the information from from the genome to the protein. So genome is 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 transcribed to uh, RNA and we extract the RNA and then we sequence the RNA. And then with that you get a very long list of the genes being expressed or being synthesized or being been doing something at that moment for the frogs. And then we try to see if that set of genes or the collection of genes represents something that might be useful to answer the questions about the phenotype, like for example, the correlation or the outer resistance, or well, now we have been trying to address a little bit of the resistance to BD or the or the key treat. So things like how to do with an immunity. So it's so I would say that our, our lab is moving in the sense that try to connect what we see in the field with what we happens inside the frogs. Uh, so it's it's like a one way to connect my early beginnings with the frogs that actually was doing and I was working in a genetics lab in humans and I wanted to know the phylogeny of the frogs. Now I now now 20 years later I'm trying to to connect what I see in the frogs with now for the genes that the frogs have. So it's the connection between molecular biology and, and field biology in some sense. The other things that we are doing is, um, I would say that always I've been wondering what's going to happen with the frogs at the end of the century and the centuries that will come after, 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 after I'm long gone. So what is going to happen? So and the way that we do it is trying to address the effects of climate change as something that is affecting every single system on the planet, from humans to plants, you name it, everything is being affected by the climate change. And frogs are not immune to that. And poison frogs obviously are not immune to that. 
So one of the things that we are, we are trying to address is basically trying to be to use their distribution and try to address some patterns of the physiology, trying to connect what is called the ecophysiology with the distribution of the species and see what is going to be the likely distribution of the species in the future. So what we do is basically try to get information about the distribution of species now, get information about how these places where these trucks live are looking now in terms of their precipitation, the temperature, the rainfall. And now use models that people have proposed about what's going to happen in 20 years and 40 years and 100 years and see if the frost is going to be there or not. Basically, if the place where they, we are now, they are living now, that seems to be fine for them with the right temperature, the right humidity, it's going to be the same after 100 years if we continue this process of global warming. And for me, it's kind of depressing, but it's important to do that because, you know, I've been studying frogs from the past, so the phylogeny, what is happening, how they have evolved, their ancestors, all the mechanisms that we see in them. But I have never asked what's going to be the future of the frogs, what is going to be after 100 years, because it will be very sad that we have been doing all this research, talking about these frogs, taking pictures, taping them, seeing what they do, how they react, what they eat. And 100 years from now, they are all gone. Basically, they are just one lost branch of the tree of life as a consequence of something that will be very dark because, you know, frogs deserve to live and like any other species on the planet. And these frogs, because of their of their nature, they are very dependent on temperature, they're dependent on precipitation, and the future is bleak. The Amazon is going to be really start become dry up, will be, will become more and more un, unsuitable for these frogs, and we're going to see extinctions. I've some seen some species in my lifetime, like, for example, I, I, when I started, I went to see, uh, I started with finding Ophega sylvatica, and that was really common in some places around in Ecuador. But eventually, I started returning to the same places, they looked the same, but the frogs were gone. And, they, and it was hard to find some of those, but eventually, we returned three years later, they are gone. So everything that you have done, like from the collection of tissues, from the collection of photographs, the physiology, is now an historical record. It's not something that can be enhanced with new tools, with new research, because the populations that were the main source now are gone. You have to switch to another ones. And who knows if these new ones will be gone in the next 20 years. At the rate that, is, that everything is going, eventually many of the species that, that we have very narrow distributions, when you think about places, in, in the, especially in the equatorial regions, like close to the Amazon basin where Ecuador is located, uh, you will find that most of the frogs will, the suitable areas are very close to where the Andes are because those places still be, still be, have a little bit of the humidity and the, and the temperature the frogs can tolerate. Because if you go, if you go 100 years from now to the places that the frogs are now plentiful, those places will be too hot or too dry for them to survive. And the females are very, very, I wouldn't say weak, but very sensible to the environment. So it's not like reptiles that they can withstand lack of water. But poison frogs, they need water and they need the right temperature. And poison frogs, most people have rice poison frogs in in, 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 in vivariums or, or in aquariums, they, you know, you have to control temperature and humidity. So imagine that uh, you have the entire place where these animals live and you remove or make it really dry for them to survive. You're gonna see extinctions happening at really fast pace. And, unless we do something, at least for the level of scientists, that is basically 
being able to describe what we see from them and then be able to account for every single population that exists and eventually create some sort of, of genetics collections of everything. So basically trying to collect all of these all these field trips to actually be able at least to salvage some of the, the genetic diversity there that eventually some future technology might allow to repopulate those when we have done or have improved the way that we manage climate change. For the moment, it's like it's, it's a race against time because if we just wait five years or 10 years, most of the frogs that have been barely explored maybe are gone. And once everything, when extinction is, happens, it's permanent. There is no way to bring back a species that's gone. It's not, you cannot reproduce all the millions of millions of years of history that have enabled to produce such a wonderful frogs as the poison frogs. So that's why my lab also is working in, in climate change, trying to understand what is going to be the future of the frogs. We know more or less something about their tasks, what they are doing, how they work, why they're so wonderful, why they're so so attractive to do research, how friendly they are, so um, generous are in, in terms of knowledge. So it's it's one of the best systems that I can think because you can ask anything you can ask from journality the parental care the 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 physiology the ecological situation everything but if they are gone if they become extinct then there is no point so there is not going to be anything to explore anything to to tell at least the things that are actually the main source of our research will be just um, just a memory and you know memories fails so Hopefully, at least on research, at least the collection that we are doing, or the people, or the research people are doing, in terms of try to keep the collections alive and being able to account for these populations as they go through all this process of warming, allows us to, to keep the idea of studying poison frogs as something worthwhile. So, if there is worthwhile, people do research, do collections, go on the field and account for what they are doing, and then eventually can use that for to improve what's going to happen next or what's happening now. So, for example, if they need to be moved to a different place or we need to do extensive genetic sampling to be able to store all that genetic information, or at least their identity, you know, the DNA is their identity. Somehow in the future, we are able to revive them. Who knows? We hope, we, I hope that we don't have to reach to that level. But, you know, uh, we have to do something. And at least doing this sort of research is at least something that that I hope helps to save them. Those are all amazing points. I, uh, it, it's it's difficult thinking about a practical solution for such a difficult problem that has so many different facets to it. I've heard I've spoken with other scientists, some of whom I've had on the show, that stress the importance of establishing some sort of a gene bank to preserve the genetic integrity of, of many of these individual members of species that might very well be lost within the next, anywhere from the next month to the next century, as, as you said. I mean, in a, per, in a perfect world, if you had some ideas in terms of what could be done to, I mean, obviously we can't go back in time and, and change things, but if we were able to steady the course, do you have any ideas or opinions of your own in terms of how that could be accomplished? Well, you think about how to save the frost at some level. So first thing is like, you know, most of the things are not, it's not, we can, as scientists, we cannot do the policy. So scientists, we recommend to the policymakers, it could be a level of governments, could be a level of local authorities, 
or people that can do the policies to do preservation. But if you think about what we can do to somehow, somehow save for the future, is first is obviously help find science. Obviously, you need scientists, you need to generate, you need to provide support for scientists, not only for people doing research here, but also for the students, and especially local scientists. When you think about who is doing actually seeing the extinctions going in real time are the people living where the frogs are. And these are, it's a huge diversity of scientists. Some people are really young, some people are really old, some people that have new ideas, some people have kind of solid ideas. And sometimes it's hard to navigate uh, with all the different policies that each country has or each institution has. But at some level, everybody is alarmed about declines and worried because, you know, with the key trade, when what happened to Aphilopus was a wake up call to everybody selling frogs in South America. It, uh, every single frog that lives where Kitrit has been, at least where, where the history of Kitrit or the study of Kitrit started, affected, including poison frogs. We saw frogs that went extinct, and people were alarmed because it used to be frogs that were really common, and they went, suddenly they are gone. And, and eventually, some species might bounce back a little bit, but not in the numbers that used to be in the past. So, how it can be done, at least, as I said, Research has to be a collective effort. So you have to support local scientists as well as young scientists. So basically your students, so they are received all the all the knowledge and all the training necessary to actually confront what needs to be done in terms of of saving what is what we can do. I don't mention about doing triage or basically deciding which one is going to go in, which one is not. I think that's a two-one easy solution. should be something that is more, at least at some level, try to save as much of genetic information. And doesn't need to come here to the United States. can be staying in the, the countries where the frogs live as long as, as it's a way to keep those institutions in some sort of partnership. So in our lab, we have been trying to do that with the Ecuadorian and Colombian colleagues. So we work and collect frogs together. Most of the specimens are staying there. And so the idea is that local scientists are trained with us and we are we are trained with by them. So because we don't know everything about the frogs, they know what the frogs are, what they do, what new species or new populations are of interest, what are distributed and they know the local laws. That is sometimes something that is really hard to understand from the perspective here being doing research in the United States. Here you have bodies are more or less well established in terms of the procedures to do collections. And so then there is a form that you apply and then basically it's a set of norms that can be followed and then an expectation about those those permits on what the collections are or the funding is available for those collections to be uh, to stay for a long term preservation like museums that have long history of preserving specimens now expanding to collections of genetic material and things like that. But when you think about local institutions there it varies. Some institutions are really good, have maintained and increased the quality of their research, but but sometimes those institutions have to face changes in the policies of their own countries, and that is sometimes is hard. Like for example, sometimes when I try to collect do collections or work with colleagues in Ecuador, we have to wait months or sometimes a year because the policies have changed. Sometimes they allow to do collections, sometimes they don't allow to do collections, even though some of the patients on material will stay there. So what we try to do is that we try to minimize the process of 
of of of waiting and try to keep as many of at least keep the tabs and the collections there. So eventually, as the technology improves and the the ability to get it moves from the labs to actually the field that's happening now. So as as the technology progresses now, as new technology that you can actually go into the field and do the sequencing. So I know it's not as 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 good as we have for the local companies that do the sequencing for us, but it's not going to be very far along that we're not going to move the molecular lab to the field. So you're going to be in the middle of the jungle doing the complete genome of a portion from there. That would be something surprising. And you don't have to deal with the, all the procedures to bring in samples and who is owner or what. And always also open to everything that should be open. Nobody should patent anything that the research should be free free access to all the people involved from the local authorities to the public in general because at least for scientists in, in the united states we are paid by by taxes that basically keep our funding agencies going so that funding agencies provide our scientists funding funds to go and do research in the field and we have to respond for that but you know when you think about research in in, in south america that is more I've seen people that are really heroic. They usually use their personal funds to do their research. And it's kind of sad because basically the governments, they they they, they have to face so many different things that actually doing research is a very low priority. So usually end up very rich people or people that have personal funds for other sources that actually are doing the research. And sometimes it's very inconsistent. Sometimes they can be long-term and be very pleased to have some colleagues that have been able to do keep their research going for 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 decades but sometimes you find people that you have collaborated for for a, for a couple of years or five years they soon they seem to be consistent persistent and they are doing good research but the conditions on the country changes so much especially for example you know think about Venezuela that changes so much in in the in the last 20 years that Start from a place that you can do research with level of local scientists. We're doing good research there. That pretty much everything, everybody that I know has immigrated somewhere else. So you know, as we face the impacts of climate change, that's not waiting till the scientists come back or you form a new generation of scientists. They, those rocks are there, especially for example, you think about Venezuela. Those rocks will be gone because nobody's doing anything there. So it's, people are trying to survive now. So there is low priority to actually look for the for for the own relatives or the man of any that are in places that are more likely are now gone or gonna be destroyed as as if the the human uh, agriculture zones start to span on, and and you know people are looking for fuel so they have to to just deforestation is something rampant because there's an easy way to get uh, just wood to to actually have a hot meal there when you have to face all these things so you know it's it's a complex thing but at least as i mentioned to summarize is at least know that the taxes that you pay here goes to the funding agencies that actually providing our our scientists here the capacity to do this research and we respond to that with our research and publications and and providing you with the best that we can in terms of our capacities we work try to work in collaboration obviously it's always competition between scientists and groups but all all of us love at least the ones that work in poison frogs love poison frogs so that is something that is uh, something that we really care so we don't want to see them extinct so 
So that's one thing. And then obviously always keep or have collaborators abroad. So don't do your science for for the people that is here only, of, I mean, here in the United States or Europe or any other developed country. Also work with partners there. So those people eventually sometimes give you two surprises. Yeah? I'm, I'm being very pleased because sometimes I go places like I have no clue what to go and look for frogs and frogs, but local scientists knew exactly the places that sometimes find new species or things that I have never seen that I thought that a possible can do or, or leave or support with stand or, or show. So, and that is something that, uh, that I, I always try to keep people when I talk to my colleagues or to my students, I always try to have a partner, whatever place that you're trying to do your research. And then uh, obviously, you know, as, as mentioned, the funding for the museums, local and abroad is important. So we need to have at least a place that we can put something that eventually future technology might allow us to Revive if we if we if we lost them or at least being able to catalog that information that who knows eventually can be used to help as some of these species become less and less genetically diverse to improve their their capacity to, to adapt. You know the main reason that many species die is because they lose their ability to to adapt. So basically they become so inbred, so decline in their. their diversity that basically any change will just knock down the entire population and they are gone because they are not enough variability. And that is something that really worries me because, you know, in case of poison frogs, some like very pristine forests and these forests as they become fragmented, you start having small populations and you start seeing local extinction, those small patches of forests. So what, and then usually what happens is that few individuals survive in those patches, they start to inbreed if they inbreed, and eventually those are less fit than a, a more healthy population that has enough genetic variability. Uh, eventually they are lost and then the process continues. So that's more or less, I think, my final thoughts about what we are doing, what we are trying to do. All very important concerns. Well, listen, uh, Juan, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show and sharing so much information with us. I, I really appreciate it. And I'm going to, for everyone listening, check out the links in the show notes. I'm going to provide some links to the Santos Lab and uh, anything else that's going to be relevant to the show. So I want to thank Juan again for coming on the show and, and being my guest. It was a real pleasure. And I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I, I love conversations like this. It's always great to... Uh, you know, just get into it with someone who, who is just completely immersed into the dart frog world. And um, I hope you guys really appreciate this episode because I know that I did. And I'll catch up with you guys again soon. <laughs>